Although we can't go back in time, we can reflect on our past experiences and learn from them. But wouldn't it be so amazing if we could? If you could, what would you tell yourself? This is Letters to My Younger Self. I'm Liz Gardner. Join me as we talk with some of my favorite people about their life stories and how they've learned and how we can become a little better by hearing their incredible stories. Dear little Richie, don't worry about the future. You have it all under control. You will have someone who's going to make the best out of your life, who's going to push you to be your best self. Today on the podcast, I have Ruchi. She is amazing. She's generous and smart and kind. We met her. We're at Kellogg, and she's actually had two master's degrees. She also graduated from Indian Institute of Management. Ruchi grew up in India, and we talk about her experiences growing up there and how she moved out of her house at age 14 to go to high school and we talk about her arranged marriage and she shares a little bit more about her Indian culture and what that means to her. She is really an amazing person and one of my favorite things that she said during the interview was things are meant to be mended not broken. I hope you enjoy her interview today. Thanks so much, Ruchi, for being on the podcast today. I'm so excited for us to be able to chat. So am I. I'm super excited. Never done this before, and I'm so happy to be sharing all the things that I have to say. Well, I'm sure you'll be great. So, Ruchi, where did you grow up? Um, So, I was born in a very small suburbs of Patna, which is the second largest city in the eastern part of India. So I was lucky to be born to a parents with a stable income, a happy middle-class family, but the neighborhood that I lived in was relatively poor with farmers, with small lands, not a lot of income, but even though they didn't have a lot, they were really content with their life. They were super happy folks. That taught me how to really appreciate things that you have and be happy in whatever you have. I don't know if I ever told you that when I graduated high school, we went and did a service trip in India. That was um, one of the first times I left the country and we were in Chennai. And Mm -hmm. I remember thinking it's so much different than the way that I grew up, but how happy people were. And really, I feel like I've learned a lot about you don't really need material things. That's one thing that I'll carry in my life from my childhood. I, the people I lived around, you would clearly see that they lived in scarcity, but you would never see that they were unhappy. They were happy about everything that they had. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about your childhood and what you were like as a kid. I was. There's a really interesting story about my birth. So back in the days when I was born, it was considered a taboo, at least in the society that my parents lived in, to have a girl child. So my mom and my dad, they were under tremendous pressure that, you should abort the child, given that it's a girl, it's not going to be any good to you. But my mom, like, she literally held the crown. She tells me all the kind of stories that she had to listen to, the taunts and all the different things that people would say to her. But she said that she wanted me. And that's how she named me Ruchi, which means interest or will in my in Hindi language. 
And she says that I was born out of her sheer interest and will. And to her point, I was a very stubborn child, which it was difficult to break, break my will and break my courage. So I would fail a lot, but I was stubborn and I always held my ground. I was a bright child, I would say, but very notorious. I my parents, but I think I ended up doing good. I studied in a local school. I was the bright kid and I made paved my way. I think I'm the most educated in my family right now, next to my father. Yeah. So just because of my second master's now, and now I am the most educated and my parents are really proud of me. That makes me happy. That's so awesome. So it was taboo to have a girl first or just to have a girl in general? Just a girl child. My parents already had my sister, which was a big thing. Like she was already hearing a lot of not so many good things from other relatives or the my neighbors. And then on top, she was expecting a second girl child. So it was like a no, no, absolute no, no. So what would people do if they had multiple girls? So for people like my parents, they would just rear them, make sure that their girls are safe, they, they make the best of their lives. But for others, a lot of not so fortunate girls, they will literally live their life in tyranny. A lot of people would not educate them, keep them in the house, make sure they do the house chores, stuff like that. But fortunately, I was born to my parents. That's so sad. I read this book recently, and it was saying how the education with women actually has increased that worldwide men only get an extra year of education but I think there's certain pockets of places where obviously the women don't have as good of education or don't have as much opportunity as the men yeah that's true you would see that a lot in rural India but I'm happy to say that the things are changing fast in the yeah. present time, I see even even the poorest of the society, they take care of their children, their, their girls, more than what they used to. And and the progress is in a good direction. So I'm hopeful for the future. So how, so how many siblings do you have? We are three. Eldest is my brother, my sister. They both are doctors and then me. I, I'm the only one who has ever stepped out of the country. Both of them are still back in India. Wow. So they, they've never left India even for a trip? No, no. They both love, it's not because they couldn't, they just never wanted to. They love being there. They're more, their ties with my parents and their tie with their friends and people in India is way more than I had. I had a little more urge to step out and break free. Instead, they, they, they are just happy being there. That's great. So tell us a little bit more about your parents. My parents, I... I think almost every child love love their parents, and I am not an exception. I think they are the most, the kindest, the sweetest people on earth. My dad, he's a doctor, and unlike the general perception in the U.S. that doctors make a lot of money, they're usually rich, my dad has spent most of his fortune in taking care of the society and my mom. Most of the time, he... he takes care of his patients without without any cost. He even provides them medicines and everything that he can for free. So he's really respected in the society. And I look up to him. I think I get that hint of giving nature from him. And my mom on the other side, she is a really strong, courageous woman. So she had 
she has been suffering from a chronic kidney disease since 98. And she had to go through the most painful procedures, be it dialysis. And I can't even, I, I don't want to think about it. They were so painful up until 2016 when we could afford a transplant for her, but I have never seen her complain. She has always been looking forward to the life and she has been like, oh, this is so good. My life is perfect. My kids are doing good. So I think I get my courage from her. I, I cannot thank them enough with whatever mere, whatever resources they had, whatever opportunities they gave me. I think I owe everything that I have to them. And you were talking about how your your father's so giving. You are seriously one of the most generous people ever. I feel like my kids love you. And I remember the first time we came to your apartment and Hayden left with candy and you were giving him the highlighters that you have. <laughs> and you sent him home with the animal and all those things. And you're very generous and always come with sweets and fun things for the kids. Say. I think Hayden is a loving child. That's he was a very loving child. That's why he loves me. That's the way to trick Hayden and Liam to be friends with me. Just to be honest. Even if you didn't bring treats, they would love you. So. Oh, I, I hope so because I love them so much. They're they're best. Oh, thank you. You talked a little bit about how you had done two master's programs, but tell us a little bit about your what was your education like for your high school? The high school experience in India is a little different from US. It's more more streamlined, more discipline, as in you have less flexibility to do things of your choice. There's well laid out paths, what you want to do in future, because in general, the risk-taking appetite is low for parents. They want to make sure that their kids, they either become a doctor or an engineer or civil service and make good lives for them, earn the money. And they, since they don't have a lot of resources, at least from the place that I come from, they don't have a, the flexibility to give, let them experiment on their own with their career. So in my school, a lot of focus was on studies because there were three clear career options that each child had to take, engineering, doctor, or civil services, which is the government jobs. So we knew that 90% of the time in our school, we would focus on studies and the rest 10% it could be on whatever you want to do. I, on the other hand, was a little different child. My parents, as I told you, they, they, were, they are an exception in the society. They, they gave me the full freedom. They never told me that, okay, you, go, you have to go study. I spent a lot of time playing, but I still ended up doing good. I think that's because I was happy in what I was doing. And then yeah, if you're happy, if, you, if your heart is what you're doing, you do well. So it was a small school with not a lot of exposure to outside world. So my parents thought it would be good for me to step out of the small suburb and go to the capital of the country. So I went to, I did my high school there two years. It was a whole new world to me. I didn't know there were other career opportunities out there in the world. There were different kinds of sports and they, you you could study anything other than science and maths. Oh my God, I had never imagined. So did you not live with your parents when you went to school there? No, I, I moved out of my family. I moved out, out of my family home back in 2003 when I was like 14, 13, 14. I have, and I've never lived with the family ever since. I was on my own. Fortunately, my sister and my brother came to stay with me for a while to support me. But then once I graduated from high school, I went to study engineering in a, 
in, in a dorm. I lived in a dorm. And ever since I have always lived in a dorm to share an apartment. So that has shaped me a lot. I have become more self-dependent. I know that I'll have to find my own ways because my parents had only little experience of what was out there in the world. So I did my engineering. I realized, okay, I just don't want to stay in science. Maybe I want to do some business as well. And that's when I decided that I wanted to do an MBA. It was just a dream for me. I never thought that I would make it to an IAM. I never had that confidence in me. Although I was I was a carefree child, but I never thought that I was I was good. I was good enough, but I wasn't the best. That's what I thought. But when I made through the IAM, I thought, mm, if I work hard, maybe I can get whatever I want. So that was a big life-changing experience for me. My first MBA was was I would say it was like my first love. I did two MBAs, but I still love my first MBA more. It's full of excitement, enthusiasm, a lot of things. It's not that Kellogg was any worse. It's just that they both had their own pros and cons. And since I did my first MBA at IAM, it's like my first love. No, that makes sense. And for those that aren't familiar with IAM, it's it is the most prestigious school that you can get into in India. So, I mean, it's like getting into, it'd be like you getting into Harvard in, in America or Stanford. It's like the best that you can do. And so I'm sure when you found out you got in, it was like, wow, this is amazing. Oh, yes. I could never believe it. My parents, my father never, he was like, you got to be kidding me. This is no way true. I was like, no, this is true. I made it. It's like, that's much how you believe. He said, no, no. I'm just, I just can't believe it's just too happy to be true. So it was one of the best days of my life. That's so awesome. So you did IIM and then also you got your, your second MBA at Kellogg. That's where we met you. And so how did your programs differ? So I would talk about the similarities and the differences, which is, I found Starkly similar to my surprise were the academics, the quality of the professors, the teaching methodology, uh, the course materials that you follow. It was Western class, both places. I was so lucky to have mentors and faculty that I got in both the schools. So there was absolutely no difference in my opinion. The differences that I saw, something that I appreciate at IAM more than Kellogg, is the program was residential. So all the students for the batch of 380 students, they lived on the campus. They literally spent 24 hours of the day with each other. We ate together. We, we lived in the, in the same big dorms, big hostels. And we would spend our nights in the libraries. I almost knew 350 people by their names. I still know them. I reach out to them. I, I made lifelong friends. So that was something better, I felt was at IAM, it gave you the opportunity to build this closer ties just by the by the sheer fact that you live together. Yeah. What I appreciated more at Kellogg was the diversity. I back in IAM, people thought the way I did, the culturally they had similar backgrounds, not very different from what I was. But at Kellogg, I saw so many different people and it made me realize that there are thousands of people who can be right at the same time. It's all about perspective. And then I had to broaden my thoughts. So I, I'm really happy that I came to Kellogg after I am. It was an additive to my personality. I Now I look at things in a way broader perspective than what I used to. I'm more accepting. I'm more open to so many ideas. Yeah, it's so interesting when you think about 
just something like ethics, you know, and something that you kind of have this clear, this is the way we do things. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever read the book, The Righteous Mind. I have not. It's really interesting, but it kind of talks about people's perspectives and kind of what they prioritize and how sometimes even with politics and things like that, you might say like, this is right and this is wrong, but it kind of breaks down why we have those thoughts and different things. And it kind of goes through different cultures and talks about, you know, where we come from, like where we have the idea of what's right and wrong. And one thing I thought was interesting was they, they would ask people questions like, for example, they would say somebody was an atheist. So they don't believe in God. They don't believe that there's life after death, but they said, if I give you $2, will you write this, that you sell your soul to me? And then, no, I won't do that. Well, why? But they couldn't give like a reason why, because they don't believe that their life will go on after this or whatever. But they like, they're like, I don't know. I just, I, they didn't have like a reason to explain why it felt wrong. But even if anyway, so it was just really interesting and kind of like made you think outside of the box of just kind of why some of the things that we see, but yeah, anyways, it's a really interesting book. You should put it on your, yeah. I think that's, that's something I, I, I wish I had learned that earlier in my life, I was more open to ideas. I would have made more friends for sure. I would have a different, I would have enjoyed my life more because I, well, I would have appreciated a lot of things, but it's never too late. Yeah. Right? I guess going on that then. So if you could go back in time and give yourself advice when you were at IIM, knowing what you know now, what would you say? I would have said that it's okay to be refuted. It's okay to accept that you're wrong. Things could be, there are so many frame of references and you don't always have to be right. So things would have been different if I, if I had that perspective then. Yeah. Well, I think that's good advice for everyone. I think sometimes we have a little bit too much pride and we want to be right. And at the detriment of certain situations and being able to learn when we kind of humble ourselves enough to, I actually don't know everything. Yeah. The hardest thing is to accept that I was wrong. But once you are past it, once you have said it out loud, life gets so easy. It's, it gets easier to accept new things. It gets easier to yeah. be accepted by others. Too. For sure. Tell us a little bit about while you were IIM, how you got into acting. I got into acting even way back in my school, in my senior secondary school. It happened by an accident. It, we, we had a big show to be put up for a government agencies back in my hometown. And then one of the lead actresses, she she just got sick. And then they had no options. And I was one of the kids who was omnipresent. I wasn't the best, but I was jack of all trades. I said, well, do you want to give it a try? I said, why not? And then I loved it so much that I it went from one, one drama to second to third. And then it became, I wanted to do theatrics. And then I joined all the theatrics club in my school, in my undergrad. And then I joined at IAM. IAM was... A relatively bigger stage we had more mature actors coming from different walks of life so it was a little different experience and we had more professional people at IM who who were into acting careers and then they knew how to do this stuff so that's why I enjoyed it a little more I, I learned even more but it was fun I was never good at humor trust me I th- those were the kind of acts I always avoided I didn't want to do comedy so that 
my weakness, but I'm I'm good. <laughs> well, I think you're funny, so I would totally watch it. <laughs> Thank God, that makes you one. <laughs> I would watch anything you do. I would be just your number one fan, no matter what you did. Right? So, what was your favorite show that you did? Ironically, it was a humor. It was a comedy drama when I portrayed as a corrupt politician, which is very, very rampant in this world. So I was a corrupt politician. And what (laughs) made it difficult for me that I had to, I had to mimic a dialect from my region that I've never used before. So I had to practice and practice for that dialect. And in the end, I was so perfect at it that people didn't realize that I don't belong to that region. I, I did it perfectly in the end. So it's a win, a small win for me, but I still remember. Can you do it for us? Oh, um, I don't think you would understand, but it's it's an, it's a Hindi dialect. But that means I am very happy to be here. Well, it sounds great. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, that just shows how smart you are. Right? You just you could do anything. Right? As long as it, it's in my favor, I'm happy to accept it. But I don't know how much truth lies in there. <laughs> when did you first move to the U.S.? Was that for Kellogg? Oh no, I moved. Um, I worked in U.S. for five months for a short project in Atlanta. It was back in 2017. Okay. Two years before I joined Kellogg. It was, it was for five months, and that was my first time in the U.S. So nowhere related to studies. It was just for work. So you had that five-month stint in Atlanta. What was that like for you? That was my first time living out of my country. I had visited other countries, but I have never lived out of the country for a long time. So I was. it was a mixed feeling. I was overwhelmed with happiness, the fear of unknowns and anxiety, how would the life be, whether my colleagues would love me or not, would I do a good So it was all the things coming together. But once I was here, I, I, I was happily surprised. And the thing that I loved the most in the US um, was feeling comfortable in my own skin. So unfortunately, back, back home, to be a woman, there's a lot of many, a lot of expectations, and how do you clothe? How do you portray your body? Is one of them. So when I came to the U.S. and I could wear shorts without people looking at me, without people looking at my legs, or I could wear a bikini and no one giving it a heed, it was like, oh my god! It was a new sense of freedom that I discovered, and I didn't want to like lose it. I was so happy with it. I I still remember that was the best best thing for me coming here i do remember when we were in india we weren't allowed to wear we would go to the beach and for our safety they wouldn't let us wear a swimsuit yeah and we would wear clothes on top of our swimsuits and then they had us dress in traditional indian clothing but i remember thinking these clothes are so comfortable why do we wear jeans in the u.s (laughs) (laughs) yeah it is comfortable but sometimes you just want to you want to own your body. You want to experiment. You want to look the way you would want to, but you don't have the freedom. And I was happily surprised when I saw that in the U.S. I really appreciate that in this culture. And I wish we moved towards it back home. So you were in Atlanta for five months, and then what happened after that? Now that I've experienced a new, 
new culture, new type of people, the diversity that I experienced in my team. It was amazing. I liked that experience. So, and by then I had also met my to-be husband and he wanted to come to the US. So we both started thinking that maybe that's the right move. At least get an exposure of what's out there in the world, learn things, and then we can think, take one step at a time. And that's when we decided that, okay, we will both move to the US for a while, experience it, and then decide what we want to do with the life in future. That's awesome. Tell us a little bit about your marriage. And I know you had an arranged marriage. Can you explain how arranged marriages work and how it all came about? Arranged marriages in India, they're two, two very different kinds. So the one, the more prevalent one, because which is in most of the rural parts of the India, almost 60% of the population or even more lives in the rural parts. So arranged marriages there is different from what I experienced. In a typical arranged marriage, what would happen is the bride or the groom's family, they would look for the right match. It's considered a taboo for a girl or a boy to look for their own match. So the parents would do that job. And the typical evaluation criteria for the right match would be how much does some, how much of money does the groom make or how beautiful is the bride, how reputed is the family in society, how many pieces of land do they own, would they have good enough to support the new bride or the groom. And once you have, once the family has identified the right match, if the girl and the groom get lucky, they might get to talk to each other before the wedding. If not, they just get married. They get to know on the day of the wedding or they talk on the day of the wedding and then the life goes on. In a way, it is kind of restrictive to the bride and the groom, but what works in the favor is the family does a pretty exhaustive job in finding the right person. And the onus of the marriage to work not only lies on the girl and the boy, but on the whole family altogether. So they try to support the, the, the newlyweds to make sure that their life, they ease into their married life and then they work well together. And a lot of time it works. I would say I have seen it succeed a lot of time People also learn to make compromises rather than just breaking up. So that's also another part of arranged marriages in India. People know that we will have to adjust to each other. More often than not, it's the girl, unfortunately, but now things are changing. It's now both men and the boy and the girl. They both know that they have to adjust with each other. Then comes the second type of the arranged marriage, which is more prevalent in the urban India and what happened to me. So I was lucky. My role was to find the right match. So I was given the freedom that, okay, who do you like? Who would you want to get married to? These, these are the people. Or, or go find yourselves. So I, could, I had the choice that I said, I like this. My sister really helped me wetting through the choice like yeah this thing sounds to be a good boy then my parents were like okay now we want to make sure that the families blend together we we also go along and then we get married so they took care of the logistics making sure both our families they adjusted to each other and then they had all the marriage logistics done good thing was i didn't have to take care of any of the finances i just take care i just had to take care of the that's it you just had to take care of what? Of the right groom, finding the right man. <laughs> and taken care of. 
your husband is amazing. He's so sweet. Oh, I feel blessed. I, I love him. I love him so much. I was looking up some information about arranged marriages, and I think India has one of the lowest divorce rates. But I think that mm -hmm. there kind of is this mentality of you're finding this life partner and you're, you were saying you're adjusting and trying to make things work and compromising, which is what mm -hmm. is so important in a marriage. But I think a lot of times people, they might quote unquote, fall out of love because they stop trying. Obviously there's mm -hmm. so many situations that people get divorced and I'm not here to tell people what they should do in their <laughs> marriage or anything. Mm -hmm. But I think that it really is like a healthy way of looking at helping work together. Yeah, I think with the culture, with the with the way arranged marriages are set up in India, it it is a mentality that you have that I have to make it work. First, I have to give it the best. And maybe the breaking off, breaking away option doesn't exist. As much as it sounds good, as much as I support that, there is a small part of me which says that overdoing that can be a kill as well. Yeah. Many of you like, just because the society wouldn't accept you to break away, you don't get a divorce when, it, when that's the right thing to do. There are many situations when two people are good, but they are just not good for each yeah. other. And then realize there's no point staying together. So there should be some flexibility in the society, some acceptance about that these things can happen. But I, at the same time, I'm, I'm appreciative of the fact that we are born with, we are raised with the thought that things are made to be mended, not broken. Yeah. So while you have that, have a little more flexibility for the exceptions. I like that. The things are meant to be mended, not broken. Oh, I just made it up. Yeah. We'll, we'll quote you for, for the rest of your life, right? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Google search. That would, that would give my yes. case. So your parents kind of checked out. They were checking each other out. Like, was there a time that you met your in-laws that you had to do anything special? Or did you just, how does that all work? So it was relatively smoother for me. So my in-laws were not, my parents, they are not my parents, but my relatives, my side of the family is more conservative. So they had more restrictions on what the groom should be, how it should, how their family should be. Rather, my in-laws, they are a little, little more broad-minded. They're like, oh, as long as you like the girl, yeah, okay. So it was my husband who had to go through this whole ordeal of giving the interview, qualifying to be a husband. So he himself had to visit my family with like 10 people from my side and asking him questions for two straight oh days and he had and qualify that examination to, to become my groom. So that happens. In this case, it was for my husband, but usually it happens for the girl. They would make you walk. They would make you talk. They would ask what you cook, what you work, a lot of questions. So thankfully I didn't have to go through, but I feel sorry for my yeah. husband. I'm assuming your parents also had an arranged marriage? Yes, my parents, both my siblings, they had arranged marriages. And did your parents know uh, each other very well before they got married? They didn't know each other very well. I wouldn't say that they dated in public or, or they, they even dated, but my mother was somehow related to my parents' family. Not She knew someone in the family, so she would visit sometimes. 
And that's when my granddad, then granddad, talked to my father that I like this girl. Do you like this girl too? And my dad was like, yeah, I kind of like her. And then likewise, my grandmother asked my mom. My grandmother was matriarch. She was like, if you like it, only then we are going to get married. Else you're not. It's your choice. It was way back in like 1970s, which was the most conservative times. One of the most conservative times in my in, in the history that I remember. Yeah. So then taking the consent for the boy and the girl was a big thing. So that's how they, they got married. They never dated, but they knew at least this person exists in, in world. They ended up being a, a wonderful match and raised an amazing okay. daughter. And I'm sure your siblings are wonderful too. I just haven't met them. <laughs> I don't know about us, the siblings. We are we are we are really naughty kids. But I think my parents—they are amazing couple. They, they arrange marriage. I think their arranged marriage is exemplary. My dad, my mom has was has been bedridden for so long, for so long. My dad has spent all the fortunes that he he earned, but I've never seen either of the those complaining about each other. Like you don't take care of me, or. I had to spend so much on you. I my life was all about you. My dad never traveled, never traveled because my mom couldn't, and my mom couldn't do a lot of things that she wanted, which would be like because I am I am sick. My my husband will have to do a lot of things to make sure this happens. She kept quiet, and both they both still never complain about each. Other. They are so happy with each other, and oh my god, they couldn't have it any other way. So every time I look at them, I wish, oh my God, I want to grow old like them. I wish me and my husband are like that when we are that old. That's so sweet. I don't know if I've told you that we kind of joke that me and Nate had an arranged marriage because Nate's family, they met me and then they kept pressuring him to ask me out. Like, oh, we really like I know the story. And he's, I don't think she's my type. And the whole family, like <laughs> his sister, she prayed that we would get married and all this stuff. And so it's really funny. So we joke that it was an arranged marriage. And he's like, I didn't really know what my type was, but my family did a great job picking you out. <laughs> well, they know. And, and see, it's working out so well. Yes, it's wonderful. So Nate got lucky, I would oh, say. Okay. I got lucky too. He's a good one. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Tell us about your wedding day. I'm curious to hear some of the traditions in an Indian wedding. I know that your dresses, the things you wear are so beautiful and colorful and the pictures from your wedding are just absolutely stunning. But tell us a little bit about your day. For sure. I think I... Any words fall short when I want to describe that day. I was so, so happy. I was happy, nervous, excited all at the same time. And Indian weddings are a little different from what you would see in the U.S. They are a long ordeal. So it stretches over like 10, 15 days. My wedding stretched over 15 wow. days. We have so many different functions. We have this one occasion where you put tattoos, henna tattoos on the hand, People from both sides, so the family from the both sides, they would come together, they sing and they dance. So it's it's day before the wedding when the f extended families on the both sides get to know each other. They blend with each other so that on the wedding day, they can have more fun. That's the idea. They are spread very close to each other. 
So the actual wedding happens overnight. So it starts at seven in the evening and ends till four or five in the oh morning. I know. While you get really, you start really excited in the evening, you dress up, you look nice, you want to be great for the wedding. By the midnight, you're like, I just want to get over with this. So that happens. And there are very specific moments in the whole process, which makes you feel, oh, now I'm closer to this man. I'm closer to. So there's one process where you put a colored stuff on your head, which signifies that Okay, now you are married. This is the point. This is the point in the whole process that you're married. So that was very special for me. I I felt like, oh, my life has changed suddenly. And yeah, the, the whole process is beautiful. It People are singing in the background. You would see a lot of laughter, a lot of color, people talking to each other. And then there's small little procedures incorporated in, in the whole process to make it more fun. For example, the bride side people, they would try to steal the groom's shoes and then they would ask for some money. They would make do another <laughs> tricks. So it's happening overnight. That's, that sounds pretty entertaining and exhausting. I can't imagine staying up till 5 a.m. Oh my God. And another thing. Okay, let me tell you one more thing. So in the weddings, in my wedding, they were in the whole process. I met more than a thousand people. Wow. And every meet someone elder to you you have to bow down touch their feet get up then do namaste and then smile think about doing that on a single night thousand you bow down you smile i was like oh my god i don't want to bow down anymore <laughs> literally had a backache by the oh, end I of bet. It. they're like we're gonna make you work for this marriage <laughs> oh yes but in the end, it was it was nice. When I look back at the pictures, all the the nice dresses I used to wear, and then all the people that I met, it was fun. It was really yeah, fun. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you guys do dance? Do you dance at the wedding? Oh yes. Um, typically, I was the first girl in my whole family that danced on her wedding. Typically, it's a taboo. You you can't smile on your wedding. Being a bride, you can't smile. You can't show your face, you can't dance, you can't sing, you can't giggle. But my dad, my parents were like, do whatever you, you like to, you enjoy, it's your day. That would be kind of hard not to smile on your wedding day. I know, that's why, that's what it frustrates me. Because it's, as a bride, why are you not supposed to be happy? Why can't you smile? Why can't you dance? It's your wedding after all, you're not, you're not supposed to be yeah. sad. Tell us a little bit about how, how do you feel like the arranged marriages have changed over time? How has it changed since your grandparents? And what do you foresee it being like for your children? The way arranged marriages have changed, there are some good aspects to it and some bads. The good ones that I would say is now women have more say in their marriages than they used to, even the groups. But Women were even more suppressed. Now that is changing. People are getting equal opportunities to look for the right people for themselves or say whatever they want to. That is good. Something which I ch see changing for worse is the same idea that things are made to be mended, not broken. People have become less adjusting over time. I see people fight more often 
for small things, they complain more rather than looking at things that were positive. Now, just because they have options, they're like, what if I, I could have done something else? What if I had a different man or a different woman? It, it's not it's not the biggest issue, but I think that's something that people should be careful about. With the choices, these, these feeling of apprehensions also come. You need to be careful about that. Yeah. But otherwise, I think overall, it's changing for good. More power to women, more power to people to whom this actually matters. Yeah, which I think is important too, because I think if if you feel like you have more of a say, then you can be a positive force in your marriage and like you have more control. And regardless of how we meet our spouses or however it comes about, whether we pick them or we have an arranged marriage, we still have to choose them over and over. And we choose them every day by loving them and serving them and putting them first. Sometimes when it's easier to feel like you want to put yourself first, but I think doing those little things to nurture your marriage and be able to have a good relationship really is what helps marriages to flourish and grow. Yep. Yeah. I couldn't agree anymore. It's, Exactly what you summarized. But it is an interesting thought to think of if you have all these options and even just thinking of these TV shows that we watch over and over again and of Mm -hmm. seeing this couple fall in love and everything seems so easy and great all the time, but our real lives don't always resemble that. (laughs) Not very much. It takes work and we have to compromise with each other and and we're going to disagree on things. No two people are going to have the exact about everything but I think it's so good for us too because I think as you have to work for things it makes us appreciate it and love it all the more even though times we think like the path of least resistance is the best but that's not necessarily what makes us the most happy agree agree and unless you didn't have sadness in life you wouldn't appreciate happiness right it would lose meaning of it so I think in a way it's good that if you and your spouse differ at some point and then you come together and then you appreciate each other that's that's really yeah. good i know you guys lived apart as newlyweds tell us a little bit about your life after marriage yeah so up until now we have been living away from each other it's been two years now and we didn't really have one house to come come to uh, mostly because First, he was in the U.S. I was in the in India for the first year, and then when I came to India, he was in a diff- came to U.S. He was in a different location. First for the study, then for the job. So, I would say it was really difficult to make sure that we are still that the love is still strong. You you understand each other it was difficult, and it takes a lot of patience and commitment. What really helped us to make sure that we were not assuming things. If we had had that open channel of communication, if we had any misunderstanding or insecurities, be open to talk about it and never sleep on a fight. So never assume something and sleep over it. And then because it only aggravates the next day. So talking about things that were in our mind, making that carving that time for each other was the most critical to keep, keep us together. And I would say... I have been lucky in the sense that my, that my husband 
he is very patient. I could be short-tempered, but he listens to me absolutely in the best way. And that has calmed down my temper too. So now we don't fight really. I would be honest. I don't think we got to know each other, each other unless we started spending more time with each other, like living two months in a stretch. Even now, I don't think I know him fully or he knows me fully. Once you come together, you start knowing each other more more and it was okay for us to be like oh there are some unknowns but we'll eventually figure it out yeah you guys lived apart for the first year and a half was it yep yeah and COVID kind of helped you guys to be able to live together right I think COVID is the situation when we have lived together the most while we have been working or studying we have never lived so long with each other and then you're quarantined you're like wow we just Go from not living in the That's same right. state to just me and you. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at him all day and be like, I wish I could have another face to look at. <laughs> no, it has been a blessing. You're so gorgeous. <laughs> oh my God, Liz, I love you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, so what did you guys do while you guys lived apart to try to get to know each other better or to kind of keep your marriage strong? Like how I said, we made sure it was a priority. We had priorities. The first priority was we'll make sure we have time for each other. Even though we were in a different time zone, India was 12 hours behind US, but we would make sure that we had that two hour when we were talking to each other. doesn't matter what we were going through. And since we were in the same field. He's also an MBA student. I have been through MBA. I know what the routine looks like. So it helped me not be anxious. Oh, he's not giving me time. But I know that's how it is. So that helped. And making sure we were not assuming things like how I said, just talking, whatever is in your mind, just spit it out, just say it so that there is nothing unknown. We can solve problems by the way of talking. That helped bring clothes traveling too we made sure that we traveled to each we saw each other in like every two months or we couldn't since we were students with a lot alone we couldn't travel like every week but we made sure we traveled like in a month or two we had to compromise on so many other things i couldn't go out on so many trips at kellogg i couldn't go out on so many parties and stuff but that was a choice we had to make and we did that and it paid off in the yeah. end Well, I think you guys are such a sweet couple and I feel like that definitely probably wasn't the easiest situation to start your marriage off not living in the same place. But I think I'm glad that you guys are living together now and that you guys are both in the same city and that you were able to transfer to the Austin location so that you guys don't have to pay for multiple apartments. Yes. Yes. And we can live under the same roof now. My only worry is now I'll have to share my closet. (laughs) Oh my. That's always a struggle. I always just think about like 80% and then leave him with the other 20%. (laughs) Uh, I hope he takes that. I hope he takes that. I should even lower. I'll give him 10 and then negotiate. All right. Men just, they don't need as many clothes. They can wear the same. They have the same colors anyways. Just grab whatever yeah, you want. They, and especially dress clothes. It's just like a different blue version of the shirt, right? Yeah, blue, white, grays. 
whatever just pick yeah. any it doesn't make a difference what does your culture mean to you ruchi mm. so when i think about culture i think about three different things the first is the religious beliefs the second is the social values and then the third is the way of living so for me i'll start with the first for me i have never been a religious person i i believe in god but i don't believe in in religion so for say like christianity or islam or hinduism i believe there is a there is a supreme power but i don't think the power has created different groups okay you belong to this group or that the power has created us equal and in my experience i i know people have other experiences they have better my experience i have seen religious religion divide a lot of people so i try to stir away i just i like i just have faith in god and then nothing else so that's my value for religion in terms of culture the second one is social value from my culture from india i have learned being humble being kind and appreciate the limited resources that you can that you have india is a country of lot of diversity a lot of people with not many resources to share so they share whatever they have with each other so that's that's a premise that i take in my life be kind and and appreciate what you have and share it with others and then the third thing is the way of life i for me my culture is full of colors festivals we we celebrate each other i have celebrated festivals across different religions i have met friends from different parts of india who speak different dialects and i love their language i i love the music that they sing so for me diversity is something that i want to carry i not be bounded with a boundary like being able to celebrate everybody so that's what my culture means to me love that um, this might seem like a funny question but i'm just curious when you have your own children what will you teach them about your heritage i would definitely teach them about the values that i have learned the value of being humble sharing appreciating others and understanding that everybody around you has some quality that you can learn from and then that you can appreciate it this would be relatively easier to teach because it's it's not you can still have those values within the family you can make sure your parents are incorporated in the family they can teach talk the same language of these values the thing that i find difficult to teach to my kids would be the way of life in india how do i show them the the way we celebrate the festivals how do i show them the way we celebrate the diversity we have we speak like more than 20 languages more than 700 dialects that would be difficult you can't teach it unless you experience it so i think traveling would be something that i would make sure that i i encourage my kids to do to india to to experience yeah. that i think that it's hard um, especially if they live in the us their whole life to be able to to experience that but i think that you'll be able to do that there's also i feel like i've been to like color festivals and things like that that they do in the us i oh, yeah. I'm sure that you could take them to things like that but it probably feels different here. 
Yeah, something from my childhood. I am a, my parents believe in Hinduism, so I am born Hindu, right? But I remember we celebrated Eid in my family. So I had a lot of people coming over to my house to celebrate Eid, which is an Islamic festival. Then I have celebrated Christmas ever since I remember. And those are, then we had this festival of light, Guru Parva, which is a Sikh festival. And my parents were really excited about it. I know I remember being really excited about all those festivals. And I, I don't know how, how am I going to bring that to my child? Like, look, there's beauty in almost everything that you see around you. I hope that I can do that. I'll try my best. You'll do great. What's the one thing that you wish that Americans knew about Indian culture? The thing that I've seen people misunderstand just because they haven't visited the country is India is really diverse. So there are very fair chances if you meet two people, they would belong to two different regions and they would culturally and personality-wise be very different. So just being receptive of the fact that just because they are from the same country, it's not necessary that they would be same. They can be highly different. So if you go with that um, background in your head, I think you would get to understand people better. You would know that it's not the same thing. There are minor differences that people care about. And you will blend more. Do have people made generalizations about you because thinking that you're like somebody else or... Have you had experiences with that? It happens. I wouldn't I wouldn't put it in a bad light. It's not something that is unknown to you. You would never know, right? You would never know. I never knew about the US. I never knew what it is in the South versus East versus West. It's similar. So people don't always understand the difference. And um, if only they do, if only they understand that it's very diverse, you would be more careful. You would like try to learn more about different regions. You would know it better and then it just helps you communicate with people better so it happens sometimes but I don't think I wouldn't put it in a negative like it happened and I was hurt I wouldn't say that I I only wish that if I could educate more about about the differences in different region I would make better friends they would know me better they would enjoy my culture better well, I have one last question for you, and that's if you could go back in time to any stage of life and give yourself advice, where would you go and what would you say? Um, I would go back to when I was 10, when I just started figuring out the world, myself and my place in the world. And I would say that don't be under the constant pressure of social scrutiny. You don't have to be ideal. It's okay to be flawed. It's okay to do what you would do. If you felt nobody was looking at you, it's okay to take risks and feel free. I I think somehow I have tried to be my best at my best self to be ideal. It's okay to let go. That's that's all I would say. Well, thank you so much. I've loved this interview and I've loved learning more about your culture. And I just think that you're such a remarkable person. I love you so much and just think that you are so kind and generous and just a wonderful person. Thank you so much, Liz. This was an honor.
honestly i loved talking to have i've loved always talking to and these questions have made me reflect to myself and see what it really means so thank you so much for giving me this opportunity yeah, thank you this is liz gardner thank you for listening to letters to my younger self if you have someone that you think would be great for the podcast, please feel free to reach out and share them with me. I love meeting new people, and if their story is inspirational and can help other people, I'm all for it. Thanks again for your support, and have a wonderful week.